Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dear Black Folks Podcast. Today, I have a special guest who was the one-time Southern Region Head of Security for the Nation of Islam, also one-time bodyguard for Wesley Snipes. Bruce Lee was once quoted by saying he had the fastest hands and feet he'd ever seen. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Brother Steve Muhammad. Welcome, Brother Steve, and thank you for doing the show today. I thank you, my brother, and may I say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Thank you, thank you. I, I second that. So let's get into it. Um, first, let's find out a little bit about you. Um, where were you uh, born and raised? I was born in Indianola, Mississippi, which is in the Delta, but I was raised in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, I believe I got there by the age of about five or six. Okay. okay. So I was raised in Kansas. Okay. So how was your childhood during those times? Did you um, did you all have did you experience a lot of racism growing up? Oh yes, sir. Especially in uh, in Mississippi, um, the stuff that went on there. As a young child, around five or six, you can see and have a pretty good understanding of, of what's going on. And I was raised predominantly by my grandfather. And yes, there was a lot of hate and a lot of racism going on at that time, as it is today. Yeah, right. So just so people understand the, the, the um, time frame in which you were growing up, if you don't mind sharing, what year were you born? I was born in 1939. So when I speak, I've had a lot of experience, so I'm able to speak and tell the truth. I don't have to lie or embellish it in any way. It was happening. So you mentioned you was raised by your grandfather, and doing some of my research um, on you, I I ran across um, a video where you explained how your grandfather told you to never be afraid of white folks. And you talked about an uh, experience when you were in a store, and I think one of them called you a nigger, and you hit him through a can at him, right? <laughs> that is correct. Can yes, you sir. tell us a little bit about that story? <laughs> yes, sir. My grandmother sent me to the store with a list, mm-hmm. and uh, I took it to the store, uh, and I had got all the stuff she asked me to get, or the groceries. And I was in line, and the guy behind the counter, which was a white man, he was pulling the people that were white around me, saying, I'll serve you now, and I'll serve you now. And finally, I said, excuse me, sir, but I'm next. And he says, you'll be next when I tell you, nigga, that you're next. Wow. You know? And at that time, my grandfather had taught me, and... Uh, to not be afraid of any white man. So I was had my hand inside the little basket where I was getting my groceries, and I felt this can in my hand, and I was turning it around, trying to make a decision, what am I going to do? And so I hit him upside the head with a can of tomato paste. <laughs> wow. Was that in Mississippi or Kansas? No, that was in Mississippi. In Mississippi, wow. Well, how old were you? At that time, 
I think I was about 11, my father and I, we were back visiting my grandfather and grandmother at that time. I think I was about 11 then. So we're talking about maybe around 1950, somewhere around there. Uh, I think it was, I may have been a little younger than that then because it was still in the 40s. Okay, okay. So with that, in Mississippi, you you always hear such horrible stories about um, black people being killed for, you know, talking back or whistling at a white woman or, you know, like with Emmett Till and stuff like that. So how did that turn out in, in, in the 40s, you actually hitting a white man in Mississippi? Well, after I hit him, I ran back home. And my grandfather told my father, he says, get him out of here, put him on a plane, send him back to Kansas because they're going to come looking for him. So that's what my father did. But my father told me that when he got back, he pulled up in the, the back of the house and uh, went through the back door. <coughs> and... Uh, he said when he got there and he looked, he was looking for his for his father, and he saw his father at the front door, and he had a shotgun laying across, like he like you uh, have a baby in your arm. He had the shotgun the same way, and he goes to the door and opened the door with his feet. And my grandfather talked real southern. He said, "What y'all want?" He said, they, one of them said, we come to get that nigga boy and we're going to take him to, uh, to the sheriff. So the sheriff can deal with him for hitting a white man. And my grandfather said, he ain't here. And one of the white men, my father said, stepped forward and one of the other white men stopped him. And he said, right there is J.C., when J.C. say he ain't here, he ain't here because he'll shoot. And they were telling the truth about my grandfather. He wasn't going to shoot them if they tried to come in that house, even though I wasn't there. And so my grandfather, I mean, my father said he came in. He had a shotgun, too, because at that time they wouldn't sell rifles to black people. They would only sell shotguns because they only could travel a certain range and be able to hit, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a person, which is at, at distance about 50 yards. Beyond that point, uh, they were spread quite a, considerably, so they would only sell them shotguns. Wow. Uh, my grandfather went out back and raised the shotgun up, and he turned it in the air. Uh, my father said about three times, and about 15 to 20 black men stood up in a cornfield. They had already come to the house to assist my grandfather and uh, uh, if he needed help. I asked my father, I said, how did my grandfather uh, uh, get in touch with them to let them know? And at that time, I realized I had heard this before and I had was familiar with it, but they had wooden drums that they used to send messages to. Wow. And the map would be the location of whose house it was and whether it was an emergency or whether it was a party. 
and they knew that it was only three or four codes, I assume, that I heard about that they would play on these drums. But these, and some distance was 10, 5, 10 miles away. And they could still hear those drum beats because they sent them on to each house or each uh, house at a certain distance would hear and would send it on. Wow. That's amazing, my brother. That is absolutely, I've never heard that before. Wow. Yes, sir. Now, I think I heard you say that, was your grandfather born a slave? My grandmother and grandfather, <clears throat> they were both slaves. Okay. They were born in the 1800s, somewhere around, <clears throat> I think in the 1860s or something like that. Okay. And my grandmother and grandfather, <clears throat> my grandfather lived to be 93. My grandmother lived to be 98, even though they were slaves. Wow. So I imagine that, that <clears throat> messaging from, with the drums probably came from how from from the from from the slavery and them being a, uh, using that way of communicating, would you think? Oh yes, sir. It was passed on because if all of them in that area knew about it, it had to be passed on, and they talked about it and trained and how the code in which they were going to send. Right, right. That's amazing. That's amazing that he they they survived through you know doing that back then. You hear so many horror stories from back then, um, especially in Mississippi, when you stand, stood up to, to white people like that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay, so um, so let's move a little forward. So at, at what point did you move to, you ended up moving to Los Angeles at one time, right? At, at some point, right? Yes, sir. I went into the military, and I got out of the military. I stayed in Los Angeles because I had sisters and brothers there. Okay. And when, when did you um, get involved in martial arts? I got involved in martial arts, actually, in Okinawa. When I first went into the Marine Corps, I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. Mm -hmm. I took a style of martial arts called Goju, which I did not learn very good because I was always in the field training. Mm -hmm. And I'd be in the field for two months, three months. I'd come back and be back on base for maybe two weeks or three weeks. And I would try to get a, a training in uh, during the time that I was there. And most of the time it was only two or three times I had training. Okay. So um, so once you got off the military, you, you continued to pursue martial arts? Yes, sir. I got into a science called Kempo on the Great Grandmaster Parker. Okay, that was going to be my next question. Who was your teacher? So it was uh, Grandmaster Parker. Okay. Yes, he was head of the organization. And he taught some a class every now and then. It, you could say every five or six months he may visit the school. But my teachers were Danny Nosanto, my basic teacher, and then Chuck Sullivan uh, was the second teacher I had, which also helped me to fight or learn to the science of fighting. Okay. <clears throat> well, growing up, were you a fighter? Did you fight a lot? Did, were you, did you like fighting or was the martial arts just something you came across and became a fighter? No, oh, coming up, I, I kind of like it. Uh, I was kind of small, coming well, still small, but I was really small coming up. And 
there was a guy when we moved to uh, Topeka, Kansas. The first day we got there, uh, he came over to the house and he asked my mom, she answered the door. He said, you have somebody I can play with? She says, yeah, I have Steve. He was much bigger than me, about the same age, but he was taller, thicker, everything. And I went out there, I'm sitting on the steps and he started flipping his hand behind my head. You know, I'm saying, man, this guy, why is he pushing me around like this? Then he got, so he was slapping me in the back of the head. Mm. And he did that for about a week. And I said, man, I, I, I got to figure out a way to stop him <laughs> from, from hitting me upside the head. So I thought I would run, you know. Uh. So my mom, I said, mom, uh, that I come over today, I said, would you answer the door for me? She said, oh, yes, I, of course I will. She answered the door. I shot out that door. <laughs> <laughs> are chasing me this guy chased me i was afraid to death of him but i was getting you know less afraid of other people by being afraid of him Mm -hmm. and i i'd fight everybody so that's how you say fight everybody but him (laughs) i was scared of him because of you know how he treated me when i first got there Uh but i had a chance to fight him when i went back after i got out of the marine corps and when I left to go into the Marine Corps, I weighed about 145. When I came out of boot camp, uh, after getting out, they send you home for 30 days. And now in boot camp, I weighed, I weighed when I came home, I weighed 165. I was solid and my skin was like hard rubber, you know, from going through all that training that I had gone through. Right. And... Uh, I wasn't a person that was afraid and made me uh, feel a certain way about being able to handle whatever came in front of me. So I went home and we're at a, at a party at, uh, uh, I can't think of the name of the park now, but uh, we were at a park, like a recreation center and we were dancing. I was dancing with my girlfriend. He came up and touched me on the shoulder. I didn't know it was him when he touched me on the shoulder, so I just pulled my shoulder away. And uh, he hit me on the shoulder, so I turned around. And when I turned around, now I'm about 5'8". This guy's about 6'2", or 6'3", now, and probably weigh about 220 pounds. And I was shocked to see that he had gotten that big. And so my girlfriend said, whispered and said, I don't want to dance with him. So I said, because he asked me if he could dance, cut in and dance with us. So I had to say, no, she doesn't want to dance with you. He said, I didn't ask you. And when he said that, my friend walked up. He was afraid of my friend. I didn't know because I hadn't been in town that that long. Mm-hmm. But uh, my friend yelled out. He said, what's the problem? He says, uh, I got a problem with your friend, Steve. My friend yelled out, take it outside. Because back in the day, yeah. <laughs> you could go out and fight. Right. But to make it short, I, we went out there and we started to fight. And after about 15 seconds of us moving at each other, he was tired. Now, I just got a Marine Corps yeah, boot camp. Top like, shape. <laughs> <laughs> I wore his backside out. <laughs> oh, you got your revenge finally, huh? Oh, yes, sir, brother. <laughs> so, when you, um, so, so now you're back 
back in L.A. Um, studying under Grandmaster Parker. Is that that was correct, right? Yes, sir. So did you start um, fighting in the circuits? Yes, sir. After about, um, I would say about six months, I tried to fight. And I went to a tournament. And I had no idea as to how a tournament would be ran or even to fight another opponent because I hadn't really been fighting anyone. But I got out there and tried. And I got beat up in about 10 seconds. Really? You know, I said, well, maybe I need to train a little bit more. <laughs> so that's when I started training. But, yes, I got into the tournament circle, I think, when I was a two-tip white belt, which is still a beginner. But uh, I found out in the school that I was in that I was really beginning to be able to see movements and really be sharp at countering movements and, and quicken movements with hand and feet. Mm -hmm. So I started my uh, uh, tournament journey at a two-tipper as a white belt. Okay. So did, did you fight internationally or worldwide? Or? No, I, I traveled with Parker to a couple of different countries. Uh, but uh, I didn't get into it real heavy because back in the day, in the 60s, uh, they didn't really want me to be with them at that time. or any. I didn't really see any blacks in karate at the time that I was in. Uh, I didn't know about the blacks in New York and other places didn't know if there was some in, in California because the schools that I went to and hung around with, they were all ran by Oriental, uh, Hispanic, or either uh, 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 Filipinos or someone like that, other than somebody black. So I didn't know there were even black instructors back in, I think it was 64. Then. So that was going to lead to my next question. So there there you experienced a lot of a lot of racism in the martial arts uh ranks. Oh. oh yes sir, my brother. Yes sir, a lot of uh, racism in the martial arts. Uh I didn't really feel it that much until I became a black belt. Once I became a black belt, there were already well-known black belts that were already fighting they wouldn't allow me uh, to beat them up because they were already the world champions. Uh, so no matter how hard I fought and what I did, how well I knew the martial arts, by the point system, they wouldn't let me win. Wow. So I, I, I think I remember seeing on one of your interviews, you, were, you, were, you talked about that and you... Actually, I think you may have said something to the refs or something like, why do they keep cheating me or something? Um, do you recall something like that? Like, Oh, yes, sir. It was the last time I actually fought uh, in a tournament like that. Uh, I think I may have fought twice after that because I was asked to do so. But my time for fighting was up, and I could tell by what I felt as I... I had my journey in fighting and it's like in the beginning it was like a bright light that was in my my head my heart everything I could just it was something that was beautiful and wonderful and that light started to go out and when it did I began to realize that my time for fighting is up 
I had one more chance to become the international world champion, which they would not let allow me to be. So I said, man, this is my last time. I'm going to train, you know, really hard so that they won't be able to deny me. And I did that. And at the end of, uh, I, I went out and I got two points and all you had to do was get two points. I got those two points probably on uh, uh, Joe Lewis at that time I was fighting. I got those two points on Joe Lewis probably within about 30 seconds of the fight. And I think the fight was something like, supposed to be something like two minutes. And when I couldn't get any points on him, my energy and my spirit start to falter a little bit because I knew then that they weren't going to let me win. So we went into overtime and we fought and we fought until finally he did get a point on me. And when they did, they stopped the fight and gave it to him. Wow. So um, I stopped fighting after that. So you were never able to, to obtain a championship? Uh, no, I wasn't able to. Uh, uh, well, I became on paper. Look how they did me on paper fighting for the international world champion on paper and in his fouls. He had me down as winning the international three times. Wow. And but yet to me in the world, I had never won it. Because they never saw that. Wow. If you what I'm saying, they hid it. Wow. So there's a, a, a story that said um, Bruce Lee saw you and told you that you had the fastest hands and feet he'd ever seen. Can you explain that, that encounter? And did you all go on to become friends? Yes, sir. I was fighting in a tournament one day. And later on, I found out that he and Chuck Norris were sitting together in the stand. And he had looked over and he asked, well, who's that guy? And he said, that's uh, the time, uh, Steve Sanders. You know, he said, I, I saw him fight early. That guy has extremely fast hand and feet. So I fought again while he was watching me. And as soon as I got through fighting, he came over. Just him, uh, Chuck, I guess, was sitting in the stand, but uh, Bruce came over. He touched me on the shoulder, and I turned around. I said, yes, sir. He says, you have extremely fast hand and feet. He said, how did you develop that? And I didn't really know because I was still young in martial arts. I just knew that uh, I was pretty quick in movements, hand and feet. So he talked for a minute with me, and he, he greeted me, and he got ready to walk off and he turned around and he says, do you know me? And I didn't, couldn't recognize him, even though I had seen him on the Green Hornet, you know, every episode of the Green Hornet, I had seen him. Mm. He looked and he was thicker in the clothes in which he wore because he had on a little black uniform and a Green Hornet. Mm. So he looked small. So I couldn't recognize him because he was muscular and he looked thicker. So I, 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 did, I didn't recognize him as being Bruce Lee. So he says, Bruce, Bruce Lee, uh, Green Hornet. And I was, 
I was in awe over him in the Green Hornet. So I ran over and, you know, grabbed him and I'm jumping, you know, how you jump up and down like two little children. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I was jumping up and down. I was really honored to meet him. And he asked me, he says, uh, uh, can I get in touch with you? And I said, oh, yes, you know. And he took down the phone number and stuff in my address. And he invited me over one day. And now I don't know if, uh, I don't think I ever went to Bruce's house. When we talked to something, he always met me somewhere at some school or something like that, where we sit talked. And all of a sudden he asked me if I would work out with him. And I said, yes. And we worked out together. And he also let me know, this is between you and I. And I agreed to that. I say something now because he's he's not around, because I intend to keep my word, you know, while he's alive. Right. But it did work out together, you know, and we were friends. So you said, I remember seeing um, a video and you said that he said that he studied black fighters to get his style, right? Or he emulated their, their style. Yeah, that's who he said that he studied because he was like Muhammad Ali and he named uh, Sugar Ray Robertson and any any fighter. But predominantly, he said he watched uh, black fighters because they were extremely fast in their movements and they had good, um, uh, I forget the name that he called it, good muscle response. I'll use that, that word in fighting. And he said that most of the athletes that he saw that were black uh, was very agile in their movements, you know. So he studied them to see why their body was able to to move in the manner in which it, it does. And it doesn't mean that other uh, races uh, cannot move according to actually their bone structure. Your bone structure actually help you to be able to move and be able to be recognized as what race you actually are. doesn't matter how old. You can be 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 years. They can pull up those bones and uh, get the DNA and find out whether they're black or whatever color they may be or race they may be. But in fighting, you develop a fighting science that is according to the bone structure of the race in which you belong to. Wow. I don't know if people even think about that. Wow. At some point, you um, you joined the Nation of Islam? Yes, sir. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How did, how did you um, become, you know, what brought you to the Nation and um, your experience joining? I would like to say, from my experience in the Nation of Islam, it is the greatest time in my life that uh, I experienced happiness once I got into the nation and learned so much about myself and my people that made me actually fall in love with my people. And uh, how I got into the nation, I had a friend uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, was taking karate with me. We weren't exactly friends, but I knew him and I liked him. We became friends later on. And what he done, I was uh, at my school. And he used to see the young ladies, which 
I would never date somebody that I'm teaching because that's not good business. But he thought that maybe I like them more than just being like a papa. And they call me papa. So they would lay their heads on my shoulder. And he was thinking I had a lot of women. I didn't. None of the women in the school, you know, had any association with me other than me, teacher, student. So he decided that he wanted to get me uh, a wife. Now, he's a Muslim now. I, I'm not a Muslim at the time. So he go and get my today wife. So he did get me a wife. <laughs> <laughs> of 35 years, he brought her to the school. And well, he sent her to the school. And she come in the door. And I looked over at the door. And I saw her come in. And I wasn't used to seeing women that was dressed, covered from head to toe. Mm-hmm. Now that, you know, I'm, I'm a street brother, so I'm used to seeing women that are a little bit more loose than what uh, she was. Right. So that in itself made me, who, who is this with all these clothes on? You know, so I went to the door and said, can I help you? And she says, yes, I come to take karate. And Brother Jesse sent me. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, he takes karate here. So I start talking to her. And she was so sweet and so gentle. It, you know, pique your interest when you find a woman like that, right. just feminine. Mm-hmm. So I started talking to her to make it shorter. Uh, I asked her, I said, does Muslim women date non-Muslim men? And she said, why? And my heart just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have an answer. That's the one asking her. So I just kind of said, excuse me for a moment. I turned away and went over to Brother Jesse. And when I got in front of him, I said, I, he told me, he said, I can see you pumped out, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to kind of buff up on him a little bit. because. I, <laughs> but I became interested and I got married to her probably about a year later, I think it was. Okay, wow. So did when you joined the nation, did you immediately go into the security part of it? Well, I didn't until I think you heard of Brother Khaled. Yes. Khaled yes. Muhammad. Uh, uh, absolutely. He was Supreme Captain at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was new in the nation. And they had, we had gone to Texas. And they had put me, most of them didn't know I had any type of martial arts or that I was a champion, anything. I hadn't told them at that time. And I went to Texas with them to do security. And they had put me at the top of this building, had me watching the door facing the outside. And the minister was about to come on. So they told me, no matter what I do, I keep my eyes on that door. So I was a good Marine. So I was on that door like they told me to be. And I heard this voice say, uh, uh, Brother Steve uh, Sanders. And I kind of turned and looked. I didn't, I didn't know who he was, but I had met him before in the airport because I had said, who's this black dude with all this security? I said, man, he must be some kind of government official because I didn't know about the nation at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so he came up and he says, Steve Muhammad, uh, Steve uh, Sanders? I said, yes. He says, turn around, brother. I said, I can't turn around because <laughs> I, was, I was given instructions to watch this door. So he said, I'm the Supreme Captain. I know about the Supreme Captain. So I immediately turned around and he says, why do they have you on this door? 
And I said, I'm here to guard this door. He said, no, but why do you have, why do they have you on this door? Knowing your reputation as something. I said, because they told me to, to get on this door. That's why I'm on the door. You know, he said, okay, okay. He says, I'm going to get you off here. So he puts me on in front of the minister, uh, on the floor in front of the minister for security. And that's how I got to really know. Uh, uh, I forgot the question you asked me. I don't even know if I no, asked No, you. yeah, yeah, you did. I was asking when did you were immediately part of the security team when you joined. So a lot of people didn't know, but Khalid Muhammad did know about your, your fighting experience. Yes, he knew, but I had I left this out. He had actually come by the school one day and uh, asked about taking karate with me. And I told him, I said, man, I saw you in the airport somewhere. He didn't tell me that he was a Muslim or anything. He said, I'll come back with some lessons. And he did come back with some lessons, you know, but I still didn't know who he was until I got in the nation because I guess he didn't have to tell me. So you were, I think I read somewhere, you didn't join the nation until you were uh, 46 years old? Is that correct? I'm 40. 46? Yes. Okay. Yes. So at what point did you become the um, the southern region, the head of the southern region? How long did it take you to get to that? No, I was, I was uh, the security captain. Secure, okay, security. There was a, a, a regional captain and the assistant regional captain. Then it was me as a security captain. So I only did what I got instructions from those two men. I carried those instructions out through the region. Okay, okay. I was, um, when I was watching some of your videos, again, when I was doing more research so I can, um, you know, have some legitimate questions to ask you here. <laughs> I was, uh, I saw a story you were telling about uh, a, a an incident you all had when you you had to make like a, a semi-circle against the wall and you guys was taking down a whole bunch of people. Can you tell me a little bit more about that story? What happened, if you don't mind? Uh, yes, I hate to say this, but we were fighting the police. <laughs> 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 but because uh, it was a lot of them, and they had no reason to actually do what they were doing and dealing with us because we were on our way uh, to a training program that I had set up. And they got us down by Lamert Park mm -hmm. and uh, pulled us over and uh, tried to make us lay on the ground. And because I, I was dealing with security and training at that time, I told my, you know, I said, you're trying to make us get down on the ground. I said, it's not going to happen. Hell, we just got up. We, we don't lay down. Uh, we're not laying down anymore for anybody. He told me he was a police. I said, we're not laying down anymore for anybody. And I'll repeat that again. So he told us to sit down on the sidewalk. And we're not sitting down either. I'm not tired, you know. He told me I had a smart mouth and stuff, but I said, no, you're not going to treat us in a manner in which you treat everybody else. We're, that's unacceptable. We're in the nation of Islam, and we do not sit down or lay down on the ground unless we committed a crime. If we committed a crime, then we're a criminal. We'll obey your order. But because you just want me to lay down, I haven't committed a crime. You pulled us over, 
and you said for the taillight on the third car. So give us a ticket and let us go. But you want us to get down or sit down on the ground for a ticket. We're not going to do that. So he started calling for backup. So we said, man, we better get somewhere that if we have to fight, and we were already training, that we'll, they won't be able to encircle us and come at us that way. So we got up against the wall and made like a horseshoe. And we put the guy in the middle. He was an ex-Marine. Well, he's a Marine that had gotten out of the, the military. And the brother weighed about 225. It was looked like a silverback gorilla, man. That sucker was huge. Mm-hmm. And he could hit. So we put him in the middle. <laughs> so when they come at us, we had set up a plan how we were going to fight if we had to fight when we were walking over there. And the plan was that when one of them tried to hit us, the opposite person on the side, if he's trying to hit me, one of the people on my left or right would kick him or hit him because he's, his thoughts are about hitting me. And when he got close enough, I didn't hit him. Somebody else hit him, you know. So we kind of threw them off balance. Uh, and doing that kind of fighting. But we fought them to negotiation, which meant that they stopped and wanted to talk to us about going to jail. So they called our assistant uh, regional captain. Uh, I won't give names. Right, right, right. But uh, they called him and he came down and had us to, you know, stop fighting and just be arrested. that's what they did to us. Now I'll leave it at that. And they never. And it's interesting. You guys fought them back, and they but nope, they didn't pull out their guns to shoot or anything. Huh? Oh, they hit us with taser. They didn't pull the guns, but they hit us with a nightstick and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's really something because when they were hitting us, we didn't feel that those nightsticks. We were blocking them, and we didn't feel them until we had a chance. We were sitting in our cells. Didn't we? Damn, what, are you, what hit me here? What hit me there? <laughs> I remember when you was telling the story, you were saying how the, the brother y'all had in the middle was a knockout artist. So you, as you guys would push push the cop in that circle, he would knock him out. That's right. And I said, well, we had about 18 of them back then. <laughs> <laughs> so once, so once you, you all got to the station, I see um, how or you were saying how they was walking past you and doing like a trigger motion, like they were going to shoot. And uh, at some point, they they came into your cell with a, holding a mattress in front of them, I guess, to come and try to smother you in, against the wall. And uh, can you kind of tell the audience what, what, when they came in there with that mattress, what the result was? Well, when they told them to open the door, I saw the mattresses. I had no idea what they were going to do with that mattress at first. Until I kept watching them, I said, man, they rushed at me with that mattress. They can just knock me on the floor. And then they can just, you know, get people in here to do whatever they want to do with me. Mm-hmm. You know? So I was sitting on the bed looking at them uh, open. When he said open number five, I still remember the cell I was in. I was in number five. I said open number five and the door opened. And they put the mattress in front of the door. So I stood up. As they took a step forward, I did what is known as a spinning back kick, and I hit that mattress. I heard the dude go, oh! I'm 
must have penetrated that uh, mattress and hit him in the body somewhere. And they were back, they backed back out of the uh, the cell and uh, cl <laughs> closed number five and they closed <laughs> the door and they took him. They never came back again you know, after I did that. Wow. So when they had you, I mean, obviously you knew the law rest somewhere that at some, at one point you were a LA County Sheriff, right? I was LA County Police. Oh, police. Okay. Um, so because of that, you you were very well versed with with the law and, and knew yep. your rights, huh? Yes, sir. Yeah. So, um, uh, I want to talk about the moment when you um, when you when when Wesley Snipes when you caught Wesley Snipes' attention. Um, you were talking about uh, you all were at the mosque, and I guess there were some gang members that wanted to come and listen to the minister? Yes, sir. We were actually at a college. Oh, the college. And, okay. Right. Uh, I, I can't remember what college. I used to remember all that. I can't remember right now what college it actually was. But um, I had, uh, once again, I, I was security captain, and they had me doing outside security and also uh, to assist the inside security. So they were, we were standing out, um, uh, uh, just standing out talking and these gang members come up and said they wanted to go in, but they didn't have any money to pay to get in. And so at first I told them no. And then I called uh, my superior and asked them if they could come in. And uh, he says, yes. But somebody has to be responsible for them. They can't come in here and act up, you know. And I said, I'll let them know and give them, and I, if I choose to do so, can I let them in? He says, yeah, you can let them in, but you make that decision. And that decision falls on you. So I said, okay. So when I was standing over there talking to him, the one that was in charge of him was really getting smart. He just running off at the mouth and talking about how bad and, I mean, people he's dealt with. So I said, but what I would like for you to do is you and I walk to the side and talk. So he agreed. But I didn't know we walked to the side and we were sitting by Wesley Snipes' uh, 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 SUV. And he had the windows down a little bit. So we didn't know anybody was in the car. We thought it was an empty, you know, an empty car. Mm -hmm. So I'm standing there talking to him. I said... I said, first of all, young man, I said, do you know who you're dealing with out here? Said, no, I don't care who I'm dealing with. I said, we are called the FOI, the fruit of Islam. And I said, what I'm going to do, he said, you ain't going to do nothing to me. I said, I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking about if you mess up while you're in there and the minister not be able to do what he came here to do, which is teach. I said, I'm going to hold you responsible. You're responsible. Anything that any of your men do, I'm coming to you. Do you hear what I'm saying? And I said, uh, at this at this event right now, there's about 250 of us here at this event. And I said, in dealing with something where we have to fight, I said, there's nine of you. I said, all 200 of us is coming after you. I said, do you understand that? I said, when we fight, we fight as a unit. I said, but if you want to deal with it now, and if you can quit my backside, 
then I don't usually tell this. If you can whip my backside, then I'll make sure that you get in. But if you lose, you have to obey the rules. We'll let you in, but you have to obey the rules in which I give to you. He said, uh, uh, it, it's okay, it's, it's okay. We'll, we'll obey the rules and I'll be responsible. I said, that's all I'm doing. I said, can we have a big hug? And he said, yeah. So he hugged me, took him in, had no problem. But Wesley heard that. And when he heard what, how I talked to this, his brother, he wanted to know who I was because he didn't know. He knew about me in the martial arts, but he didn't know who I was. He hadn't really seen me officially. So he asked if he could talk to me. And that's the time that he hired me to do security for him at that night. Okay. So you were you still uh, um, with the L.A. County Police at that time, or you had, ar had already been done with the force? No, I was still a police officer. At that time, I had about 20, 26 years in as a police officer at that time. So, yes, I was still a police officer at that time. And then, so you stopped and started. And how long, how long did you work with, with Wesley? Ten years. Ten years, okay. Now, I'm, I'm not going to ask you anything personal or anything about, you know, him. But I do want to ask, you said something, because the media always attacks our black people, especially our famous ones, um, with anything negative they can put. But what I like what you said was how great of a person he was and how good he treated you. Um, yes, sir. And I just, you know, and, and I wanted you to share just that one story that you had already shared on on social on um on an interview, and that's why I'll, I'll feel comfortable asking you again how you were feeling. Um, you know, you was tired of being on the road, you missed your family and everything, and you you was heading back to your hotel, and Wesley did something for you that surprised you with your family. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh yes, sir, brother. I don't think I had seen my family for about two and a half, three months, because he was shooting uh, uh, out of state. And uh, he says, uh, he, that uh, on the way back, he says, man, I think that it's about time you want to go home and be with your family, because you're getting grumpy. You holler. <laughs> <laughs> and I was getting grumpy. <laughs> I wanted to see my family. But I, I, I got home. And I put the key in the door, and my family was there. He had got my family and brought them to the location of where we were at the time. It may have been Colorado or somewhere. I can't remember what state now. That's been years ago. But, man, I could not believe that he had done that. And he'd done more than that. I won't say, but he, money, too, he gave to her. Sent her a certain amount of money just for the use of me. Right, right, and uh, and that's why I just wanted to share that. In your opinion, that that's a good reflection on who he really is. Would you say? Yes, sir. He took me in like family. Right, right, right. And we came, and I think that of all the security that he had, he and I became the closest uh, of all the security in which he's had before. Right. He used to sit and talk to me and listen to me because. Uh, I was much older than him, so he thought that I had a little wisdom that maybe he needed to hear and help him. Yeah. Okay. 
Are, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still there. I don't know. I can't see you anymore, but I can still hear you. Uh, someone's on, tried to call me. I don't uh, know how to get off of this. I, I don't want to hang up. I can hang up. No, oh, no, I no. Think just... Oh, there you go. There you go. You back up. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay. I can see you and hear me. Okay, great. So, um, so, so are you all, do you, you still have communication? You all still friends? Yes, sir. I talked to him about two or three days ago. Oh, great, great. Okay. He actually got on, he got on my Zoom. I teach Zoom. I teach martial arts on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And he got on there. My wife surprised me because she talked to him and he got on there to go do some lessons with me. And I didn't know who it was. And I was sitting too far back to be able to read the writing on the screen. And I said, uh, dressed in the black with the white, I couldn't tell what it was on it. I said, "May you, uh, said, I would like for you to give their name. And he says, Daywalker. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Wes. <laughs> I knew that that was part of Blade, you know. So, so I want I want to ask you that in, in a lot of Wesley's movies, you know, he he was he was a fight. He, you know, fought a lot. Did you were you part of showing him some of those moves for the movies? Oh yes, sir. I was there. I was there for Blade. There were some things that I showed him. For okay, okay, great. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I read. I saw you said that um, for for thirty years now, you you. No meat and um and you eat once a day, is that correct? Yes, sir. For thirty five years. So, can you explain this the um the benefits of of, of that? Oh, my brother, health wise, I damaged my leg on the right, and I'm trying to come out of it now. But health wise, uh, other than my leg, I'm very healthy. Mm-hmm. But Eating one meal a day gives the body a chance to rest. Okay. It took me about a year to learn how to eat uh, one meal a day because I was eating all day, three times a day, big meals and all in between. And even though I was appeared to be in excellent shape, my health wasn't close to what it became later when I went into the nation and learned to eat one meal a day. And that, if you can do that, I thought that in um, the strongest desire that you have, especially when you're lost, found, and don't understand, the strongest desire you have is being with a woman. But that's not true. The strongest desire that you have is actually food. Mm-hmm. You can go months and months without a woman, but you don't want to go a day without the grocery. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, uh, did I answer your question? Yes, yes, sure. yes, yes. You did. Yeah, yeah. Um, you said you you were teaching a class um, on Zoom right now. Um, are are you teaching it on Zoom right now because of the the coronavirus, or were you doing it prior to? No, because of the coronavirus. Because it's not as personal when you talk on a screen to a group of people, thirty, forty, fifty people. It's not personal, right. but you have them in your class. I set up my class where I can see every person. I see every mistake that is made in that class. I position myself that way, and I think that that is the way a teacher is supposed to see. I've taught myself to see any and all movements, 
if that movement is off, then I'm aware of that by being able to see the whole class. And I can correct that student as I teach on uh, uh, Zoom. I cannot. Right. Okay. Just a little picture of them in the corner somewhere, and I don't see the movements that well. But you 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 normally teach out out of a home studio. Yes, sir. Okay. So do you plan on once this coronavirus um, goes away, whenever, however long it takes to pick back up teaching in person? Well, I'm going to have to continue to teach it because there are people uh, from all over the place that's uh, on Zoom. I couldn't do that if I have the class to come to my home. I, there's only so many that can come because they're out of state or out of the country or something. Okay, so you're going to continue well, to Zoom. Yes, sir. I'm going to continue to teach Zoom. Okay. Now, I uh, know you say you, you, um, your style was Kempo, but I know in a previous conversation when I first spoke with you, you told me that in, I think, in 2006, you, they gave you your own style or a name for your own style? They gave me a proclamation, proclamation. recognizing okay. that I had created a new and complete science for fighting, which I called Kim Wing Tai Bok. So what's, and that, I'm sorry, go ahead. That I use the term Kimwing Taibak, but to for me, it means the law of the invisible fist. Okay. I break that down because I have four sciences in that, Kimpo, Wing Chun, Tai Chi, and Boxing. Kimpo I use for my base or foundation. Wing Chun for trapping and center line. Tai Chi for footwork and fluidity. Boxing for hand speed and targeting. And when you see my students or myself move you and fight, you will see those movements uh, melted into one fighting science. Uh, and I use them that way. I don't say like many of them say, oh, this is Kempo, then I'll change it to Wing Chun, then I'll change it to Tai Chi, then I'll change it to American Boxing. No, I take those four entities and mold them into one fighting science using whatever I have to use uh, at the time I'm fighting. Uh, and also my science, uh, I took what Bruce said, but not because Bruce said it, a water language. I can explain why I use a water language. And uh, he never explained. He said, if you put water in a teacup, it becomes the teacup. When he first said that, I didn't understand the relationship to fighting that you put water in a cup, it becomes a cup. But as I continued to train, I also adopted a water language for fighting because water has the ability to flow, shift, change, create, and adapt, which is adaptability. It has the ability to seek and conform. I use seeking for attacking. I use conforming for counterattack. If you put anything that you put water or rub water up against, if there's a hole in it, you will find that hole. Right. And I that type of science in my science for fighting, that water has the ability to give life but also take it. It has the ability to overcome any obstacle in its past, no matter what it is. Somebody told me one day in a class, if you put up a dam, you can block water. I said, if you don't let that water out of that dam, it'll tear that dam down, you know, because it just more underneath in the dam where you can't see the water on top is still, but underneath it can be thunder under there. 
Because that water moving continued to bang and turn around and bang, then turn around and bang. And if you don't let it out, it would break, break that dam. I think you understand that. Yes, absolutely. Yes. yes I saw you quote, um, quoting you when you said that you should always, I'm paraphrasing, it's not word for word, but you said that, that, it, that you should always continue to try to develop more in the art because once you leave it and you don't develop anymore, the art is dead. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? That's right. We call it the martial arts. Some of us do. And some of us even use the word martial science. But uh, do they understand that when you say science, science doesn't die. It continues to grow forever. Like if you had a car, uh, that's a 1914 Ford. And then you look at a 2020 Ford, it would look nothing like that 1914 uh, Ford. Right. So you can see then that it evolved and they, it evolved through science. It's the same thing through the martial arts. When you learn a base or a foundation, then you must take that foundation and base and develop a fighting science. Like they develop one car to the next style, to the next style, to the next style. What you're doing is you're developing a science like a style. But there, you when you fight, you don't use a style or a system. I only call it Kimwing Taibak. But it's, it's not, it's not a, a style. It is a science. It is some, it's a mathematical science for fighting that is factual. And it can be actualized. 100% true, accurate, and precise, absent of doubt or fear. I teach that in my students now. Wow. Man, when you fight, you can't have no doubt and no fear. Yeah. You, and I teach them also, be agile, mobile, and hostile with pain. Yeah, you, you also said about when you fight, and you're fighting as if you're, I think you said something about like, if you're God, you can't you can't whip God, something, something like that you're saying. Can you explain that? When I went into the nation, and I was told to read the Bible and the Quran, because in order to speak to our people, it is a little different, but the same information is in there. You have to know how to speak the language of the people in order to be able to talk with them. And I saw something, and it says, ye are gods, children of the Most High God. Then it says, God, I make you in my image, and in my likeness, I took that to be a direct descendant of God. He's telling me I'm a direct, I'm a direct descendant of the God. And that if I'm a direct descendant of the God, I have the ability to become a God. And I also have the ability to respond and fight like God. And the ability to respond in a righteous manner like a God, you know. Some people challenge me on that. I don't care if they challenge me or not. I know what I know. And I know what I feel when I fight. And when I go into battle, when I was fighting, the thought of losing or quitting or having doubt did not exist. Wow. And I would tell, and I would say to them, hell, when I fight, I win. But I can't say that. Just with my mouth, my father told me having an alligator mouth and a canary backside don't go together. <laughs> I don't remember that. The alligator. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned that when my mouth said something, 
my backside had to back it up. Right. So that makes you work and work hard. And my brother, I'm proud to say this, even though it may sound arrogant to some people, but after I learned and got in and learned the Bible and the Quran and fighting, I became fearless. Somebody tell you, you're going to beat me up. That don't exist. How are you going to beat me up? I have the ability to fight like a god, and I did. That's why I gave them the information, the thought of losing, quitting, or having doubt does not exist. If there is doubt, there is no doubt. You make or find another way, and there is always, always, always another way. Well, brother, I can't think of a better way to end this beautiful conversation that I have thoroughly enjoyed. That was something great to end with. Um, I want to give, do you have any, um, a website or anything for anybody who would like to take your class over Zoom? Yes, sir. It is called uh, karateofthegods.com. Karateofthegods.com. Okay. And you are now here in Atlanta as well, correct? Yes, sir. I live in the city of Conyers. Conyers. Okay. Yes, sir. And you tell tell my my buddy Art, man, simplify and one love. So I, one love. I absolutely will. You all who all listen, a good friend of mine who I went to school with, uh, brother named Art. He's the one who got me in contact with brother Steve Muhammad, and, and I thoroughly thank him for this. It, it's been a, 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 a I could talk to you forever, but I know it's Mother's Day and. <laughs> You know, you probably have things to do, and I got to get upstairs and get dinner cooked for the wife before I be out on the porch. <laughs> but uh, but once this coronavirus is over and everybody can feel safe being around each other again, I, I look forward to being able to meet you in person and, 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 and sit down and soak up as much as I can from you. Oh, yes, sir. Art speaks very highly of you, brother, and anybody that's Art's friend. I would also like to be friends with him. Absolutely, thank you so much, and I, I again, I look forward to to meeting meeting you in person and, and de developing a friendship with you. And I, I thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, allowing me to interview you and being part of this show. Oh, I thank you, my brother, and I'm honored. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. So we'll talk soon. Yes, sir. Okay, you have enjoy the rest of your day. I sure will, and you do the same. And peace, my brother. Peace. Peace, peace to you as well, brother. Yes, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the Dear Black Folks podcast. Leave a review. Leave a message. And look forward to you tuning in on the next edition of Dear Black Folks podcast.